great peace. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is poet, storyteller, publisher, and editor Lynn Reeves, here to talk about her new poetry book, Designs on the Body. Lynn, welcome. Hello, Maggie. It's lovely to talk to you. Uh, I hope you hopefully you can hear me over the sound of the cicadas. I've kept the chickens locked up today. <laughs> so before we begin chatting, um, can I ask you please to read me a poem from Designs on the Body just to um, get us into the flavor of your work? Certainly. The one I've chosen to read is called Earth Children, and it's about the um, excavation of an old burial site dating back to Cro-Magnon times, 25,000 BC. And um, it's about the skeletons they found there. It's called Earth Children. In a grave, scraped in the permafrost, a girl of eight and an adolescent boy lie together, head to head. Beads bracelet their wrists and ring their fingers. Strings of beads are basted to their clothes. 10,000 ornate discs sliced from mammoth tusk, softened by fire and pierced. Were they highborn, buried with tears and ceremony, sent to an afterlife equipped with weapons and treasure, or sacrificed, invoking light to swallow the long darkness when the hunter is blind to his prey, a prayer for the herd's return to wind-scarred steppe as the ice retreats beneath a milder sky, or a plea for God's long absent to walk the earth again and feast to the music of bird-bone flutes. The beads of polished ivory gleam on their small skeletons. Sparks of light strike the glacier's face. Mm. That one is so visual. I can really see the two bodies in that one. Um, was it inspired by something particular? Well, I, I did a lot of research into um, beads when I discovered, um, you know, started writing bead poems and discovered it quite a rich vein there to be explored. And I came across this um, picture. Um, I think I got it from something on the internet. Uh, and uh, it was excavated only in 1969 near Russia, so it's a fairly recent discovery, and showed that right back from the earliest times, mankind has used beads, um, especially, but not only, in um, grave offerings and um, grave furniture that they are uh, containers of very special psychic powers. So I was very um, touched by the, by the illustration and it set up wondering about why these two children were buried with beads that would have taken... Um, hundreds and hundreds of hours to make um, with the slicing and softening of the mammoth task. So a lot went into their burial. Mm. Now tell me about the book itself. How did it all come together? Did you begin with, a, a, I guess, a full-scale poetry book in mind or did you begin with the poems? Uh, I began with the poems um, and, um, as I said, I started writing um, from the point of view of beads, after I was given a necklace from Nagaland, and that set me, and it had such power in it, 
that I started looking at um, its origins, and that led me to explore other kinds of stones and cultures and um, all the associated legends and symbolic information around these these small objects. And, and that, in turn, started me thinking about other ways that we adorn ourselves or have adorned ourselves, looking at fragrance and cloth, clothing and um, tattoos, body markings. And um, so it just gradually grew um, into um, a full-sized manuscript, really, um, and all with some sort of relating connections between the poems, even though not all of them were around adornment. They were still about um, how we perceive ourselves bodily in this world. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and there are not just beads, but there are, you know, there are lots of, I, I guess, objects through the poems. The, the gems, for example, are through it. I mean, there are lots of um, visual pieces of, of uh, items as I say, like the gemstones and the different colours and so forth. Yeah, yes, a lot of objects um, that seem to have to be very, quite potent um, in their um, connotations that I found interesting to work with. Mm. And I also found when I was reading it, and I don't know if this was intentional or maybe it had something to do with the whole notion of the body and how it progresses from that naked self to the clothed self back to the naked self. But I, I felt that there was a, a kind of progression through the human aging process. Yes, yes. Um, you, in the way they were ordered, I, I suppose I, I set out when I had had the poems, you know, and wondering how to integrate them together into a collection. Um, I like to look at forming some kind of narrative in, in placing poems together. Uh, even though that may only be um, an associative um, idea um, by linking similar thoughts and, and trying to give a a sense of movement. Um, and because of the nature of the poems, that felt like a logical progression because there were poems about birth and motherhood and you know the beginnings of sexuality to the more mature um, experiences of life and the um, gaining of, of an older perspective on, on life and, and um, relationships. Mm. And, and I love to gather in those the sensual, I guess, accompaniments to life, the, the clothing and, and the beads and the gems and the perfumes appropriate to those periods so that, you know, you've got a baby with the baby smells and the, you know, the the baby items going over to the you know the older person with their there is that progression also in the objects that surround life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that that's something that just went along with the um, poem. wasn't a deliberate choice, but um, please let you stop in them. Yeah. Hmm. And um, I, I noticed too that you know obviously there's the human body scene. But um, mingling with that is this whole natural wild setting that the, the human body is in and finds itself in. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Yes, I, um, I've always been really interested in the connections between 
inner and outer worlds and feel great um, sense of peace in a natural environment and in wilderness. I always love to have bits of nature around me to, to live in a in a place where I can breathe and see um, distance and you know have tactile experiences within my living environment. And um, yeah, I think those connections, um, you know, that we are made of the same elements that comprise the natural world and and that natural phenomena can, can stand in for emotional states. I think that um, through using um, in poetry sort of the references to um, the sensual details of the exterior world, that um, the inner world becomes more tangible and can uh, can become apparent through um, the, symbol, the symbol of something concrete can give an impression of um, an emotional state. Mm. Now, one of your poems that I, I felt did this quite beautifully was Irizumi Lover. Uh, could I get you to, to read that, the tanker sequence? Certainly, yes. It's probably um, good to give a little bit of context mm-hmm. before I read it. Um, it was inspired when I came across the mention of a Japanese woman writer from the Edo period who wrote that making love to a tattooed man was like being held above a landscape of beasts and flowers. <laughs> and in that period, um, it was only the labourers who tattooed their bodies because they weren't allowed to wear the richly embroidered cloth that the nobility was um, able to wear. So they decorated maybe the linings of their kimonos or their bodies. And uh, and the designs were taken from the beautiful woodblock prints of the period. So this um, affair between the courtesan and the labourer would have had to have been with uh, kept secret. Irizumi is um, the name for the Japanese tattoo. Under your plain robe, you're clothed with the brocade of your skin, hidden designs, secret as our passion. So cool to touch this living canvas stitched with needle fire, lie beneath me while I trace my desires upon you. All the seasons bloom together in the garden of your body, even cherry blossoms mock our two brief nights of love. Red chrysanthemums and sacred lotus lilies unfurl your arms. Let me wrap you around me like an embroidered sash. In your bamboo grove, branches straight and slender steer the soft sky. As canes bend to the wind's kiss, so I tremble at your vigor. A golden carp, glistening on your groin, climbs a waterfall. Tonight, climb this ravine, swim my deep river. Entwined in flight, feathered shadings of the crane's long trailing wings embrace me. How I wish we might be paired for life. Above your belly, the whiskered catfish holds me on waves of pleasure. When he flips his tail, I drown beneath tsunami waters. 
nine fierce dragons ripple their sinuous tails across your smooth limbs. Rain from a thousand clouds cannot quench my thirst for you. A swirl of clouds, the dragon over your heart clutches a pearl. Storms and sun, earth and stars are in your power, like me. The goddess, Benton, drapes flowing robes of colour all down your back. Would that I could ride you so close and constantly. Shadowed Arbor, a closed peony at rest between two strong trees. It opens in my fingers and spills its seed. How I love to play in the wild meadow of your thighs. Should you impregnate me, I would give birth to flowers. As this maple leaf, etched in crimson ink, defies the winter, may the imprint of my skin on yours refuse to fade. This willow, leaning over the rushing stream, must remember me. So often have my lips brushed against its leaves. When you don't come to share the night with me, I lie awake, envying the coloured ink carved into your skin. Fudo, Mio, blue face and gleaming sword haloed in flames, sever the iron gates that keep my love and me apart. Only four days before the harvest moon is fully swollen, I count the endless hours until you fill me again. Yes. Why tanker? Um, well, I wanted to write in the voice of the period woman, and tanker was the language of the court poets of that time. And there were verses written between separated lovers and dealt largely with longing and loss. And the images depicted in the are highly symbolic, like cranes or finer fidelity, cherry blossoms of the brevity of life, etc. And um, so I, I wondered, uh, I, the tanker form for me suited the context and the significance that I wanted to portray. Mm. I must say also that it's um, not, uh, it's more akin to the waka or early short songs of um, Japan, the, out of which tanka grew and um, I don't write the tanka being written in English today and um, this is more formal um, what is currently being written and, and I, I thought that too was um, appropriate to the stance I wanted to take in this woman's voice. Mm. One interesting thing about this poem and, and it struck me as happening in a number of poems is almost a kind of magic realism that's going on. She's reading his body and while she's reading his body or sort of um, interpreting the tattoos on him, she's almost creating a kind of art out of the observation of his body art. There's a yeah. kind of transformation going on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you impregnated me, I'd give birth to a flower. Yes, that's right. That is um, fairly magical realism. Yeah. Yeah. I must say it was a lot of fun writing this and, you know, sort of looking at all the, the different imagery from the tattoo art, which I think is very beautiful. I'm not really a great fan of 
a lot of tattoos, but I do love the Edo block prints and to, to sort of delve into what they, uh, the symbolism of each image and then to relate that, you know, to some sexual connotation with some, mm. yeah, a lot of fun to do. And, and that transformation, um, it happens in a number of your poems. That, you know, you've got humans turning into animals, um, animals turning into words, words turning into people. It's a kind of a artistic, almost a meta-art form. No, thank you. That's, that's an interesting um, observation. Yeah, I, I don't think it was intentional, but I'm, I'm glad that that has, you know, been um, a product of, of the poem, something but do you see, uh, almost in a Yeatsian way, um, this notion of art kind of, um, I guess, you know, resolving the problem of death, being one kind of non-religious solution? Yes, yes. I think um, I think it would seem that it's always been concerned with that immortalizing of the moment and transcending human condition as a kind of defiance of... Um, of death and, and the precursor of aging. Yeah, so could you read us one more poem? I'll, I'll, only, I'll only ask you to read one more. There's a lovely distance yeah. to the author reading the poem. So um, can you read us She Poems His Body? Because I think that one really typifies this. Okay, sounds good. Here we go. She Poems His Body. <clears throat> i just say that the word tau-tau is um, a Tahitian word from which we get our word tattoo. Her implements cut like a tartar's caress to a careful depth and blood feeds the page of his suppliant skin. Black lines incise the ivory plane, fine strokes, deft patterns. He wears her words, stained on his flesh, loving the pain. Bound between the covers of a slim volume, the imprint will not fade, even when, as will happen, the nib hums along the sun lines of another lover's addicted flesh. Mm. It's lovely. Thank you. Now, haiku is a form that you you love, you support. You've got um, haiku ours. Talk to me a little bit more about what attracts you to haiku. Oh, okay. Um, well, I think um, I've actually started writing haiku because I thought it would be uh, a little bit of a kind of a, a different a, a recreation in a way. Um, but then I found you it, there was so much to learn and so many... Um, yeah, things to know about it, that it became another work, if you like. Um, but the thing that attracts me to haiku is that it, um, it it's just takes a moment in time. It's sort of um, a moment of revelation or connection or closeness um, to something bigger than oneself, like it's something to do with... Um, everything in the universe being somehow connected. And um, and I think even though uh, I prefer to write 
other forms of poetry than haiku. I, you know, that's where my, my heart is mainly. I think that the discipline of writing haiku and what I've um, discovered from it has helped in the writing um, of other poetry. In particular, haiku uses understatement and tries to capture an image that will have a resonance, that will open up and unfold so that meaning becomes clearer as you reflect upon it. And the other thing about haiku is that it uses concrete imagery. It, it avoids abstractions and um, gets right to the point like taking a photograph um, but without giving a caption or explaining the photograph and letting the words speak. Um, the words of the image convey the underlying meaning. So I found haiku to be um, challenging and rewarding in that sense and I have enjoyed my involvement um, with haiku through um, some time that I've spent with Haiku Oz and that most particularly with um, Sam Supporter and I've been editing Haiku the Sam Supporter for um, 17 years now and, and that's been a, a great experience and a learning experience for me as well. Mm. And, and you didn't put Haiku in this book although there are hints of it aren't there? I felt as you mentioned that there was that kind of lightness of touch that kind of throw an image down and, and let it let it unfold to each reader in its own way. Mm, yes. Now, I think for me, um, not only do they come from different places, like a different state in writing haiku than in writing other forms of poetry, but I think they also take the reader to a different place. And um, and I wanted this book, um, yeah, to... Um, it, it had a lot of research. Like, haiku was sort of momentary, they're of the moment, whereas... The poems in this book came out of um, a lot of a lot of research, and that um, was then assimilated and and sort of had to come out again as after being processed by my own personal experience and emotional experiences that gave colour to the dry you know the dry information that I um, used as the source. Whereas haiku are much more spontaneous than that. Mm. So I, I thought they would be at odds with each other to have included any haiku. Yes. But talk to me a little bit. You're not just a poet. Um, just a poet. We'll talk about that as well. But um, talk to me about some of the other projects that you have, the, the editing work, the Potomac Press, Famous Reporter, and so on. Yeah, um, well, Famous Reporter, uh, I'm really proud to be associated with because um, I admire... Ralph Wilson, the editor of that, tremendously for his um, passion to um, publishing and he, you know his um, involvement with ideas and literature and, and his democratic approach to what he does. And you know he's uh, quite amazing. Like I've been there 17 years, but he's been bringing it out, you know, since 1986, and. Um, there were times when, before he was able to get any grants, um, which are very small, um, he'd drive a taxi to get the money to bring out the issue and, yeah, sort of um, have hand collate the pages 
I think things have become a lot simpler now for him, but he's still just as um, passionate about what he does. And I've um, made some lovely contacts um, through my association with, with Sam's reporter, and that's been very rewarding. And, and then the other one you mentioned, um, my small press, which is Pardalote Press. Um, it's, um, I do that on my own, although I use um, a wonderful designer to do my work, and I have other people that help proofread and various um, other help from time to time. Um, but I, I brought up 15 titles with Pardalote Press, and um, can only do one or two titles a year basically because of um, the time and energy that it takes. And But I try to make each one of those books as beautiful as possible and thanks to my designer Tony Fury, uh, I think each book has got a very special appeal. And um, it's been rewarded recently by um, one of them, Postcards from the Asylum by Karen Knight. It's just been shortlisted um, for the Tasmanian Book Awards in the category of Best Books by a Tasmanian Publisher. And another one, Waiting for the Owl, um, got a mention in yesterday's Sunday paper as one of two standout Tasmanian publications. So that's always you know, great when you get that sort of feedback that what you're doing is um, being appreciated, even though you might not get the benefit of it, which is not the reason you do it anyway. Yeah. Yes. No. Con congratulations for that. And and while we're on the topic, <laughs> um, why do you think it is the case? I mean, you know, it's fantastic awards, and you know, your life is is pretty much you probably could um, say this, you know, all about poetry in one form or another. But why is it that poetry remains almost resolutely, almost um, <laughs> stubbornly non-commercial, even though yeah. people are still people are writing it more than ever. The writing community is strong. Why is it commercially not a great thing? Why is it not selling? Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? It's um, something that um, we puzzle over. Um, I think in the, the best ones, uh, sellers that I have um, on my list, to translations of ancient Chinese poetry. And I think the reasons why they have sold pretty well is um, they've got a lot of national publicity because the author's profile, he's a retired eminent neurosurgeon with an Order of Australia who's a recluse on Bruny Island working into the night on translations of ancient Chinese and Greek. So, I mean, that's given him, he's interesting as a person, written with a lot of the appeal of the, the poetry. But that work translating is, um, you know, rooted in um, Zen Buddhism, which is also something that appeals. And so I sort of, when you know, thinking about this, I, I thought, well, two things um, have gone towards making those. Then I wouldn't say they're commercial, but they, you know, they've sold pretty well. And that would be publicity, profile, and promotion. And um, most people who publish poetry now. They don't have the resources to um, to do these things well. Um, they're usually small presses like myself. Um, big presses don't, um, you know, um, publish much poetry. Um, and so you rely on your author to get out there and and spruik their work. But it often goes against the nature of a poet to get out there and you know, be um, upfront in um, promoting their work. So. And the public don't really, you know, they'll recognise a, 
a centuries-old poet like Wang Wei, but they don't relate, you know, some person, a poet, a part outside of the, the niche mark of other, other poets, um, they're not well-known, so they don't, unless you do something quite controversial, um, yeah, to, to attract the gaze, or you're, you know, you're an Olympiad who, um, an, an Olympian who turns to writing poetry, then it's not a commercial adventure. If you write poetry about football. Yeah, well, that's right, you know, a bush verse and, um, and poems that appeal to the general uh, marketplace, like, with humour and, um, yeah, things that attract um, most most Australians, rather than, um, I think it's a pretty small percent of people who are actively interested in poetry. And, and yet, you know, they had the um, H.G. Nelson ABC Bushland program, which I watched with um, with some delight, actually, on television, because some of them were just performers doing kind of sing-song poetry, but, you know, they had some real poets on there. And um, people like Emily Ballou, who we've had on the show, went out there to, you know, basically a group of people who, you know, they were farming communities. These were not academics. And mm. read real poetry to them. And, you know, some of them were crying. The, the, the way in which people responded was, I, I thought it was quite powerful. Yeah, so I think if people had the opportunity more to hear, you know, what's being written today, they do respond. And we've had um, instances here where we've... Um, um, GMS and I once did a dinner, um, poetry dinner, and we got a whole lot of people that usually attend poetry readings or, you know, buy poetry books. And, and with some of had those occasions when we've gone out to the wider community, people actually love it, you know. Mm. But um, there's few and far between those opportunities. So I think it's a matter of exposure. People aren't getting uh, what is on offer. Yes, and I guess just getting people to stop for a moment, to just stop and listen. It takes a little bit of time to stop and listen, I suppose. Yeah, I'd say so, yeah. So we're nearly nearly out of time. 30 minutes always go so fast. Um, what's next for you, Lynn? What are you working on now? Um, well, I'm, I'm actually doing some study at the moment. I'm doing an MA in creative writing, which I've got another year to do. Um, I am working on a collection of haiku, which, won't, which will be just too. I'm just about to um, bring out a new book by poet Stuart Solman, which will be coming out in the new year. So I've got a pretty full agenda and, um, yeah, sort of some time, need some time there to reflect on um, another new poetry project. <laughs> yeah, so there's always lots to do. Yes, and lots, lots to look forward to as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure, Maggie. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now, our next guest is um, Tim Flannery, who is dropping by next Thursday. Uh, we'll be moving away from poetry into nonfiction, but there's a fair bit of poetry in the book, um, Here on Earth. So join us then. Thanks again, Lynn. Bye-bye. Thanks, Maggie. Bye.